HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills, and also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com and SpringerMountainFarms.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Um, I'm Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. We are a non a member-supported nonprofit radio station based in Bushwick, Brooklyn. But for this weekend, we are broadcasting live from Charleston Wine and Food Festival. You can check out our full lineup at heritageradionetwork.org slash charleston and see who's going to be stopping by. If you're in town, come by the Culinary Village. You'll see two giant teepees, and that's where you can find us. Right now, I am joined by some really awesome guys. I'm really excited to have them here. We have Sabato Sagaria. Sabato Sagaria, I'm sorry. Uh, he's the chief restaurant, chief restaurant officer at Union Square Hospitality Group. We also have John Reagan, the director of operations at Union Square Hospitality Group. And finally, Ryan Pernice, the owner-operator of Aro Hospitality, which is Table in Maine, and Osteria Matone in Roswell, Georgia. Nailed it, right? That's it. Got it. First <laughs> Welcome, time. guys. Great to be here. This isn't Brooklyn? This is not Brooklyn. Oh, I mean, the TP confused it, me. It seems there. like it, right? <laughs> this is a very expensive Airbnb rental. Yeah. So what's been interesting is we've had a lot of chefs and, and brewers, bartenders on, and you guys are kind of on the other side of, of restaurants. Do you, can you each just tell me a little bit about what you do? So in my role uh, as chief restaurant officer, I help support all of our restaurants, uh, our GMs, our uh, chefs, our director of operations, and um, really try and provide connective tissue amongst the, the group and make sure we have a, a great channel for exchanging ideas and best practices and uh, growing people through the, uh, through the company. Cool. Yeah, um, so I work with Sabro on a day-to-day basis and um, lucky to get to work with all the beverage folk across all the USHG, USHG businesses, which is great, um, and also get to work with uh, a handful of folks, specifically Gramercy Tavern and uh, private dining and all that good stuff. Awesome. Ryan? So we've got two restaurants, which is an interesting point because you have a need for a lot of things that you can't afford. So um, my job is basically making sure that the teams have what they need to make our guests really happy, whether that's information, data, or, or equipment, or 
whatever they need so I can get out of their way, let them do their thing, and help make our guests really happy. It's funny listening to that. I think it's in the basketball metaphor. It's like you don't want to, you don't necessarily need to lead the team in scoring. It's how you lead in assists. That's right. Yeah. And, and just, you do all the non glorious things on the back end, what I call the non essential or non value added but essential tasks. Got to do all that stuff so they can focus on what they do. Yeah, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Now, Ryan, you, before you opened up Table in Maine in Roswell, you were in New York and you worked at Union Square Hospitality Group. I did. I had the great fortune to work at Myelino, which we opened in 2009 with a killer team and learned a lot of great lessons and learned a lot of, of what the DNA of a great restaurant company looks like, that I could take that and spread the gospel of USHG and enlightened hospitality down in Georgia. Ryan is still a legend, so every time we open a restaurant, we're saying, okay, let's, we need to do some staffing. Who's, what positions are available? It's like, we need another Ryan. And so his, he really set the bar high, and uh, it's, it's great to finally get to, to meet him and, and share the mic with him. We're going to try to hire him right after this. <laughs> Done. So <laughs> let me just yeah. talk to the team back home. <laughs> they can probably hold it down. Yeah. Um, so, Ryan, you're opening up a new concept. Yeah. And you guys are also, you guys have new concepts on the way as well. So can you all explain to me a little bit about what are the big challenges involved in that? I know there are a lot, but some of the main ones. And then, but then what's also really fun about it? All right. Well, uh, I, I always sort of joke, our, our next restaurant coming up is called Coalition Food and Beverage. And we're at a great stage in the build out right now. Because we're early enough that it's all possibility and no problems. So right now, we're making decisions that we haven't quite yet felt the ramifications of, but we're closely getting there. So what's fun about our stage right now, and I think building out any concept, is you really get to make a a new world out of this vision you have for a thing you want to create, right? So you're picking everything from linens and napkins and silverware, logo, of course, the menu, food, wine, fitting out the team and all that to achieve this vision. And fast forward to, you know, opening night, you get to see, okay, well, I've birthed this thing. Let's see. Let's see if it can float. Um, And seeing that process from start to finish and textualizing everything, I think, is the most fun part of it. And I think I'm sure Ryan knows this better than anybody. But the interesting thing about opening a restaurant is you have that time where you birth all these great ideas and you say it's going to be just like this. And we're going to have it just like that. And you can work for months or even years to try to get that just right. And then comes the opening night when you unlock the door for the first time. And you kind of, uh, a lot of those ideas start falling, up, falling away pretty quickly. And you realize that it's not necessarily just up to you. It's uh, largely up to the guests, how they want to use the restaurant and what they want it to be for. So I think for me, that's one of the, uh, the most exciting things about opening a restaurant is watching how guests use the restaurant and what they love about it and what makes it feel like home to them. And I, one of the things that I really enjoy uh, through the opening of a restaurant is watching how your team grows. And as we take um, folks from our restaurants and then put them together to help open up a restaurant, it's how they really uh, build on the foundation that they bring with them. They're the starter yeast. And then how they can come into their own and apply all those learnings, but in a new arena. And that's really exciting to see them grow into leaders and create something um, that, you know, from scratch. What do you think? What do you think is the most important thing when you're assembling that opening team? I think it's it's important. It's just like building a, a sports team. How do you ensure that you have players that whose skill set complement each other? You don't want all field goal kickers on your football team. So how do you make sure that you have people that play all the different positions and that are playing off the same playbook? So I think that is really key. The dynamic of that team, because everything is going to be built off of that. It's sort of 
it's like you know building a snowball and just layer on layer and layer. But you need to start with a really uh, tight knit crew whose uh, skill sets and personalities are complementary to each other. I, I think a big part of that is to, to harken back to my USHE days, you know, the 49, 51, 51 percenter theory. So you've got people who may be incredibly skilled, but if they don't innately have this um, desire to make other people happy and take care of other people, I can't teach that. You know, I, I can't teach you, I can't coach you, I can't push you to like other people and want to make them happy using the tools of the restaurant. You're either going to be there or you're not. And it's so much easier to find people who, as, as we used to say in USHG, them, I imagine they still do, who is a 51 percenter and to sort of give them the tools, the assets they need to take that and run with it than it is to find someone for whom that doesn't quite come naturally and try and push them into that role. Yeah, and I would say there's something innately about restaurant folk that just get so much pleasure out of seeing other people enjoy their dinner. So in an opening, no matter how much other stuff is going on, that desire to be on the floor and uh, meeting people, creating connections, as we would say, connecting dots, um, there's always time to do the uh, the uh, spreadsheets and all that other good stuff later. So I think that that desire to be on the floor and uh, and make friends and create connections is um, you can't underestimate that. Great, and I, I want to talk a little bit too about service and and hospitality. And it, within that, there are a lot of traditions I would say within restaurants. And I was reading an article recently about. Um, a certain restaurant that wanted to maybe do away with offering someone a first taste of wine. I think it might have been a Union Square restaurant. I'm not sure. No. No. We stuck up for that. <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> but what do you what do you think of that? And maybe not specifically that tradition, but are there any any traditions and service style that you think maybe are outdated or or conversely, are there any things that you wish you saw more of in, in a restaurant service? That's a great question. I mean, we have a New York point of view, but I'd love to hear what Ryan has to say about that because I'd love to see what, what the world is like uh, in your world. There's a lot of stuff going on in restaurants right now. There's, there's political stuff. There's social media stuff. There's Uber Eats. There's all this crazy thing happening. And I, I always try and push back against a lot of the new trends and things that people are sort of Let's call it cutting corners, but I, I think it, it's important to keep a personal connection and hospitality and, and a warm and welcoming sense front and center in the restaurant. And I find that some of these new things happening in our world are counterintuitive to that or, or don't support the goal of making people feel really welcome in your restaurant. So in, in our restaurants, we're really spending a lot of time talking about, well, how can we build this community we've got going on? And what can we do? What can we change in the restaurant? How can we maybe be selective in, in what of these new trends we adopt to further the goal of hospitality? Because otherwise, I think the message gets muddled and you're at risk of doing things just because what seems like other people are doing this or you know, what elements of service, whether it is offering the first taste of wine, can we kind of shear off to make things a little more streamlined? I don't think that's always good. And I, I do see that we're headed in that direction. And, and I think we've got to kind of ring the bell a little bit about saying, no, no, there will always be a place for service. There will always be a place for hospitality. And pick and choose those different trends that advance that goal and don't oppose it. Um, I think so, along those lines of one of those uh, steps of service or parts of the meal that I think will at some point in the next couple of years become sort of a, a thing of the, a relic of the past. I might say when it comes to dropping the check and if you look at how guests value time, 
And to Ryan's point, how do you give hospitality and engage with the guests uh, when they would like to be engaged with? But there comes a time in the meal when you start to become on the clock and then you start to be eroding into their time. And so we can put that into the guest control to say, you know what, I'm ready to leave. Very similar to like in an Uber, where it's just the convenience of getting up, walking away, and not having to wait for the server to drop the check, um, to run your credit card, and then come back, and then the tip. That's about 10 to 15 minutes that when the guest says, you know what, I'd like to leave, they've already left the restaurant in their mind. Now they're just sort of looking at their watch saying, how quickly can I get out of here? So I think that's something that um, is something that we will see evolving in the next couple of years. And I think that'll be to the benefit um, of the guests and of the restaurant. And I know that there's a lot of technologies out there now that, that are working with that, with that check process where you can prepay for a meal. How do you think that positively or negatively impacts service? That's a, well, that's a different one um, in terms of how some, some people are for that in terms of, you know, this is going to be a special, special occasion and I can't wait to go dine at this restaurant in you know, a month from now. And that works great for those restaurants. But then there's also those restaurants, which I would say are probably a majority of restaurants that say, you know what, I just want to pop in here tonight and I want to grab a bite at the bar and I don't want to have to think about it, make a reservation or buy a ticket. Uh, so it's how you can appeal to your community, to your guests, and make it um, as easy as, as possible for them to um, have your restaurant be a part of their life. Do you guys think there's any other major shifts in technology that are really affecting the way you do your jobs, whether it's service, front of house, or operations? Well, I, I think there's technology every day that changes how we do our jobs. I mean, you, you just think about over the past five years how much has changed. But um, I think there's, uh, no matter what new technology comes into play, I think it's a lens that you look at it through. And uh, to Ryan's point earlier, adopting only the technology that might make sense and always asking yourself the question, is this, how, is, how does this make dinner better for our guests? You know, are we able to remember what, what cocktail they like or not have to ask them if, it's, if they like sparkling water or remember that they like to get the check right away and leave afterwards? Um, if it's not working towards that point, if it's if it's just creating efficiencies that don't make the dinner any better, I don't necessarily know if that technology is all that helpful for us if it's not turning up the dial on the hospitality. And if we used every technology that we were pitched, we would have more iPads in our restaurants than they have at the Apple Store. So You'd be talking to three iPads right now. <laughs> you, you guys didn't get into restaurants because you like technology? I thought that was... Yeah, I thought we were wrong. I, I will also say we're, we're a bit of at a point of it's like a brave new world with all the technology on offer. So back to my point earlier about is it actually advancing the, the needs of the guests? You know, your dish may be Instagram beautiful, but is it taste delicious and is it easy for the guests to eat and do they enjoy eating it? Another example, we used Open Table Mobile Pay, DoorDash or Uber Eats, all these different things. Remember when cell phones first came out? Some of us are old enough to remember cell phones first. And we had to like as a society figure out what was okay. is talking on your cell phone okay? Is it, how do we, what are the rules around this? So I think there's there's a little bit of 
sensitivity to some of these things are so new we don't yet know really how to use them as a public. You know, DoorDash, OpenTable Mobile te- Mobile Pay. We sometimes trip over ourselves to make people happy. We're like little puppies, but sometimes we're over eager and we may be behaving in a way that guests didn't anticipate in using this new tool. So I think we're all kind of trying to learn all this new stuff together and the outcome doesn't always match up with the intention. And then I also want to talk a little bit about the event that you're involved in tomorrow, um, Tipping the Scales. And it's kind of a for- going to be a forum for people to discuss the hospitality included. I know that Union Square was one of the pioneers of this. Uh, can you tell a little bit about the, maybe the thought process behind starting the hospitality included on, on the menu? Sure. So if you, I guess, going back to your original question that we started off with, uh, are there any aspects of dining that um, are sort of of the past or should be left behind? Tipping would be one of those. Uh, and that was born out of our, uh, we saw that there was a, a challenge of finding and retaining great cooks in our kitchens. And um, in order, you know, New York is a very tough place to um, come right out of college and start your career. And so how we could make it um, a way where people could actually come and establish a career there rather than be a pit stop on their way to a career um, uh, out there and anywhere else in the U.S. So we did that so that we could eliminate... uh, so we could compensate our back of house, um, but tipping stood in the way because every time we gave the back of house a uh, raise and people would say, why don't you just pay them more? We'd love to in theory, but then in doing so, what that did is then the prices would go up, uh, people would tip on that, and there would be tax on top of that, so it got more expensive for the diners. And at the same time, the front of house uh, team uh, made more as a result of gratuities. And so there was this runaway train of disparity between our dining rooms and our kitchens and our managers. And so as we say, how do we, how can we professionalize our workplace that will incentivize people to say, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be in the hospitality industry and I can actually make a career in this. And so tipping stood in the way in our ability to do that. And so that was one of the uh, reasons that we've done it and have been able to now clearly define for front of house, for uh, our kitchen teams and our managers, what growth looks like from both a professional and a financial um, aspect as they grow throughout our restaurants. What were the biggest challenges in making that transition for, for you and for guests? I'll just say I think one of the biggest challenges for us was to, um, was just in our point of view and how we looked at it, and really embrace the idea that you're, in essence, opening a new restaurant, and uh, all of the rules and the and the things that we had been tied to for so many years. All of our, all three of us, all of our careers were all based around all of these workarounds that you did in order to satisfy this whole idea of this tipping culture. When you really embrace the idea that you don't have to do those things anymore, you now have this wide open space that you can now run a restaurant the way it would ideally be run. And um, that is exhilarating, but it's also uh, it's a pretty wild idea because now you can imagine, now you can actually create a reality where you could only imagine it before. So I think that's a, a huge challenge is just imagining how you would do it outside of all these rules that you're so very used to. Well, we're going to wrap soon, but I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to shout out a, an organization or a group that's in your community that you think is doing great work with social missions, food policy, or any sort of nonprofit goal. 
Um, we do uh, 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 have a great relationship with um, Share Our Strength uh, and what they do for um, you know uh, after school and No Kid Hungry, and that's a, an initiative that we've been a part of for quite some time um, on in a number of ways. So really excited for what they do and um, taking care of that next generation. John, uh, we work. Uh, I work really closely with Gramercy Tavern, and they are uh, really closely involved with God's Love We Deliver, mm-hmm. uh, who delivers. Uh, uh, great healthy meals to the um, to the elderly and infirmed, and I think that's uh, just a fantastic thing um, that we're really proud to be involved in. Uh, I would love to talk about an organization I've been involved with called the Cooler Project, which was started by a bartender at our restaurant, Sarah Buchanan, about five years ago, um, and we help specifically coffee farmers in Rwanda achieve a level of sustainability um, that they wouldn't be able to on their own. So, for example, we just got back from a trip to Rwanda where for the last year and a half we've raised money for, bought land in Rwanda, and built a coffee washing station so that these farmers that we work with can get uh, they get a lot more money for processed cherries than you do for the, the raw cherry itself. So we were able to help them build that washing station, go over and do a ribbon cutting for them. Uh, and it was a really amazing experience. So a Kula project out of, out of Atlanta is something I'm proud of. Can you tell me a little bit more about that trip to Africa? It seemed like I was following your Instagram, and it seemed like the coolest trip ever. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. So we did the the washing station we opened on the the first two nights we were there. We visited with some of the farmers we work with. um, And these are people who tell stories like, I'm a father of seven, and before I could only send three of my kids to school because I didn't have the funds to send all of them. And now we've tripled our yield with with your help. And that's a pretty powerful thing. So right from the get-go, we had a pretty high-impact visit. Uh, And then we spent three nights on safari and three nights on the Kenyan coast. Uh, it was it was pretty amazing, and, and as my colleagues here will attest, you don't get out of the restaurants quite so often, so to be able to take a, 10 days and go to Africa and see this thing that I've been pretty intimately involved with was very special, so shout out to my team back home for letting me do that. For sure. Last question for you guys. It's an easy one, I think. We'll see. What was the last great bite you had? Uh, about a half hour ago, I had an amazing uh, smoked short rib uh, at Lewis Barbecue. I went to Lewis Barbecue Thursday. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, Sabato took mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go back a couple more days. Uh, at, uh, at The Ordinary, we had a oyster slider uh, type of thing. It was absolutely delicious. You guys must have been following me because I went to The Ordinary, too. Where are we going tonight? <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out. Right. Uh, I'll give a shout-out to the Fox Bros who are up here from Atlanta. They do just amazing barbecue. Everything these guys do is unbelievable. Uh, and they're such givers. They're such a part of the community, both in Atlanta. They're always at events up here. Uh, and they just celebrated a birthday. So happy birthday to them. They do an awesome job. Fox Brothers Barbecue. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me. This has been a really awesome conversation about what you all do on a day-to-day basis. Once again, I have Sabato Sagaria uh, and... John Reagan of Union Square Hospitality Group and Ryan Pernice of Table in Maine and Osiri Matone in Roswell, Roswell, Georgia. Um, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kat Johnson. You can find our full schedule at heritageradionetwork.org slash Charleston. I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors, Big Green Egg and Springer Mountain Farms. Um, stay tuned. We will be right back with our final show of the day, and it is going to get competitive. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied but never equaled, the Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com.
This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms. Over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation. They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.